You are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Third Series and was recorded on February 7th, 2020 at the Centre d'études Maghreb in In this episode, Teresa Germanova, Assistant Professor at the Department of Middle Eastern Studies at the Charles University in Prague, talks about constitution-making processes during democratization, Egypt and Tunisia after the 2010-2011 uprisings. Your work focuses on constitution-making in Tunisia and Egypt during their transitions. How did you become interested in this very specific angle? I was in Egypt uh, in the summer of 2012, and at the time, constitution-making was really squarely at the agenda. Uh, So one of the interesting things that I noticed was the lively debate about the question of how to organize the transition process from authoritarianism. And part of that question was was the question of uh, how to write a new constitution. That is, who would be in charge of writing it? When would it take place and how exactly? And uh, as this discussion was was going on in Egypt, so in the meantime, at the beginning of 2012, uh, the constitutional negotiations began in Tunisia in the National Constituent Assembly. And Egyptians were, of course, very much following what was going on in Tunisia. And as the Egyptian process was turning increasingly um, controversial during uh, the summer of 2012, and then especially during autumn that year, a number of people to whom I talked felt that the way that the transition and the constitution-making process was organized in Tunisia was, in fact, much better. Uh, And whether that assessment is really correct or not, in June 2013, that is just ahead of the military's intervention in politics in Egypt, when I returned to Egypt to to do some more interviews for another project, actually, with political leaders, um, I witnessed the consequences of the rushed constitution-making process, which was highly divisive and helped to cement the existing suspicions and antagonism, especially between the Muslim Brotherhood on the one hand, on the other hand, leftists and liberal political parties and revolutionaries. So many individuals in these groups, in fact, welcome, even though this was not definitely uncritical, but even come to uh, Morsi's ouster, which was followed by the, uh, by the suspension of the controversial constitution and actually a new constitution writing process. And uh, while these discussions that were going on in Egypt in 2012 about you know how to best organize the constitution-making process uh, were very much homegrown, uh, they also mirrored a global trend. And uh, that trend is that for around two decades, because before people took streets uh, in late 2010 and beginning of 2011 in Tunisia and in Egypt uh, to protest against Mubarak and Ben Ali's regimes, you know, for around uh, two decades before that uh, these protests took place, international organizations involved in peace building and democracy promotion, such as the UNDP, the International uh, IDEA or Democracy Reporting International and others, uh, they started to invest increasingly resources in programs that focus sometimes exclusively on the processes of creating constitutions and their implementation rather than simply on the constitution's content. And what was really interesting to me from the very beginning was that those two trends intersected uh, in a strong 
and of an uncritical conviction uh, that constitution-making processes are consequential, that they matter, and that inclusive processes are a key to achieving an agreement, a broad settlement on a, on a constitution. And so in my PhD thesis that I, uh, that I was writing at Warwick and which I'm now rewriting into a book, I wanted to understand whether this is really the case. And so I started to investigate three interlinked questions. And the first one is what inclusion actually means, as it can mean many things, I, I later understood, uh, depending on who's talking about it. So it can, you know, it can range from the involvement of the public to the representation of political parties. But it's also about, not only about who is involved, uh, but it's also about the extent mm -hmm. to which they're involved, meaning uh, how much leverage do these forces actually get, mm -hmm. uh, how much they can influence uh, the constitution. So that was the first question, what does inclusion actually mean? And the second question that I became interested is, uh, in is, uh, why is an inclusive process uh, eventually put in place in some contexts? such as Tunisia, actually, and not in others, like in Egypt. And my final question that I, that I wanted to understand better was how exactly these different types of inclusion actually uh, can influence a constitutional agreement. Can you elaborate on what makes the moment of constitutional bargaining important in a political transition context? I think that uh, in both Egypt and Tunisia, citizens as well as organized political groups, such as political parties, understood from the very beginning that changing the constitutions uh, could bring, well, one thing, a symbolic end to the regime, but also more practically that it could put on paper some of the guarantees, uh, some of the goals of the revolution, namely the guarantees uh, for civil and political freedoms. and a more accountable political system where power is distributed and not concentrated in, a, in hands of a few individuals. And actually the demand for uh, electing a constituent assembly and writing a new democratic constitution was in fact very straightforward from in the so-called second Kesba uh, protests from early 2011 that happened in Tunis. And they came at a time when it became very clear that although Ben Ali, you know, le already left Tunisia, so the dictator sort of disappeared overnight, his regime did not. And so, you know, the, the demand of writing the new constitution was something that people understood was something that, that could create the, the needed rupture and make sure that the revolutionary goals will be actually. And also what I wanted to add is that already before the revolutions in both Egypt and Tunisia, constitutions were used by the former regimes to empower them and to help them to restrict rights and freedoms and uh, also to restrict political pluralism. And as Nathan Brown shows so well in his book, Constitutions in Unconstitutional World, and people grasped that, people understood that. And uh, so it's not really surprising that they understood the importance of changing the charters when the democratic window of opportunity opened in 2011. And I also wanted to mention another reason why constitutional talks are so important and also so fascinating to research. And this is the fact that it usually takes a coalition of political forces coming from across the political spectrum to pressurize their authoritarian presidents and governments to resign. Yet, what is, 
what is interesting is that uh, while these loose coalitions may agree on overthrowing the dictator, they tend to have uh, very, you know, the parties that form these coalitions tend to have different and sometimes uh, even competing answers to the question of how politics should be organized from that point on. And what make made things even trickier in Egypt and Tunisia, and this is the case also in other transitional contexts, is that uh, those political differences and ideological differences will also underpinned by personal animosities, by mistrust, by prejudices, which were of course cultivated by the by the outgoing leaders. But finding an agreement despite these difficulties and despite this you know, mistrust and so on, on the rules of the political game and settling, at least to some extent, the identity-related differences is really crucial for, for democratic politics to, and, to take root in a country. What interesting and significant similarities or differences have you noted between the Egyptian and the Tunisian experiences? In my research, I focus on the differences in constitution-making processes and in what I call their design. And by the designs, I mean uh, the procedures that frame who convenes to write a constitution, to negotiate it and adopt it, and how is it done and when exactly. These are what I called the designs, and more specifically, I'm interested in a question of whether these procedures and their design promote what I call partisan inclusiveness. And what I mean by that is not only whether members of all the major political parties are in the room where the negotiations are taking place, but also in how much leverage the different forces have on the constitution in relation to their popular support, so their electoral support. And I'm also, and I also take into into account the question how participants to constitution-making process, that is the deputy themselves, how do they view uh, inclusion and how this perception might change over time. And in Egypt and Tunisia, there is a number of interesting differences in all these categories, but I won't go to uh, you know each every one of that. Now focus on what I think is the most important. So what I find really interesting is that contrary to some of the accounts which portray the Egyptian process as dominated by Islamist parties, and I'm using this vocabulary on purpose because that is the the accusation that was there at the time. So I didn't find that really to be the case. I found that uh, in both Egypt and Tunisia, indeed, uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Nahada were the strongest forces in the constituent assemblies which were writing constitutions, but other non-Islamist parties were not underrepresented uh, compared to their popular support. Of course, in Egypt, this was the case only on paper, as members of several key liberal and leftist parties decided not to enter the Constituent Assembly in, in June 2012, at the, from the very beginning, uh, in protest of it not being, in their view, representative. So we might think they were included, this really didn't eventually materialize because they decided not to, not to enter the Assembly. But the main shortcoming of the Egyptian experience, actually, when it comes to inclusiveness, uh, lied elsewhere. So unlike Tunisia, where the whole Constitution had to win the support of two-thirds of the Assembly, making it difficult for any party to push through its own constitutional vision without consulting other parties that might not share that political perspective. Smaller parties in Egypt 
could only prevent the majority political tendency from passing their preferred text if they together controlled 43% of the Constituent Assembly, of the votes in the Assembly. And it's, this basically means that their potential to veto anything was basically uh, non-existent. Focusing on the Tunisian example, uh, how would you assess the role of consensus uh, in the constitution-making process? So what I, what I do in my book is that I view these constitution-making procedures on the one hand as constraints, that is a sort of barriers that might restrict the ability of the majority actors uh, to have things their way. And on the other hand, I see them as a space where regular social interactions between individuals coming from different political backgrounds can help them to shatter some of the prejudices that they have of each other and of their opponents. And... Uh, to build interpersonal ties or closer interpersonal ties. And what I seek to show in my book is that indeed the inclusive procedures enabled constitutional agreement to become a possibility in Tunisia, while the lack of inclusion in Egypt and the shortcomings that I, that I talked about made such an outcome really improbable. What I also try to do in my work is to moderate the enthusiasm that there is for you know, constitution-making processes and their design and you know, of what, what inclusive constitution-making processes can do for democracy and for peace. And I have two main points uh, mm-hmm. to that. So first, I think that on its own, even an inclusive design is not enough to guarantee a broad-based constitutional settlement. And this is clear in Tunisia. You know, the constitutional agreement materialized only as the so-called progressivist camp in the Constituent Assembly was able to increasingly mold the constitution into a shape that they preferred, especially in the second half of 2013. Mm -hmm. And this was not necessarily because of the fact that the process was inclusive, but thanks to the developments that were going on outside of the assembly, including pressure from the civil society. And the second caveat to the importance of constitution-making procedures is related to the critical, but unfortunately under-researched question of where constitution-making designs and their inclusion actually comes from. And uh, what I want to highlight in my book is that Egypt and Tunisia set off on different tracks towards and away from democracy, not necessarily because they followed, uh, you know, different constitution-making procedures, but because of the factors that shaped their adoption in the first place. So just to give you an example, to be a bit more specific, I try to show that only some contexts of a transition from authoritarianism and only some power configurations actually drive the implementation of an inclusive process. And in Tunisia, the inclusive process was was born, I think, to a large degree from the specific transition path that uh, the country witnessed after Ben Ali's fall and which involved the appointment of the autonstance, so the interim unelected uh, parliament composed of both parties and civil society. And this this body uh, presented a favorable power configuration between the different political forces, none of which could actually unilaterally decide uh, the format of the constitutional change. And this was different in Egypt, where you know the particular constitution-making process that was put in place after the revolution was uh, a product of a situation of power misbalance post-2011 on one hand, and the transition process that was guided by the generals of the of the Supreme uh, Council of the Armed Forces. Focusing on the Tunisian example, how would you assess the role of consensus in the constitution-making process? 
So I think that a broad-based agreement on a constitution is really important during democratization. And I think the developments in Egypt in 2013 tell us a lot about what happens when such an agreement does not emerge. Uh, so, you know, although the Constituent Assembly there approved, you know, in, in November 2012, the Constitution, this happened in the absence of most, you know, of the non-Islamist deputies who withdrew from the body earlier that month in protest. And so even though the constitution actually was eventually embraced by voters in a referendum, there was a large segment of political forces who fundamentally opposed the text. And this, of course, opened the door for uh, the military intervention uh, later on. In Tunisia, in contrast, deputies of the National Constituent Assembly approved the constitution by 200 out of 216 votes, so almost unanimously. And across the political board, politicians agreed that the constitution was a success. And in our interviews, I had a feeling that, that most of them really agreed that the constitution felt like it was theirs, which is an outcome, interestingly, few would have imagined just a few months earlier. So as you know, uh, in July 2013, after the assassination of Mohamed Brahmi, close to 60 deputies of the of the Constituent Assembly decided to boycott the Assembly's work and some even called for the body's dissolution. Uh, but eventually they managed to find a way to come together. And although some six years later there is indeed a talk of changing some aspects of the Constitution, nobody really questions, I think, the essence of democratic politics anymore, which mm -hmm. was the case in Egypt. But as I'm stressing the importance of the agreement on a constitution, I also think that such consensual politics should not last forever. And reading Chantal Mouffe's work is, I think, really helpful to understand why this is the case. She argues that a healthy dose of conflict is in fact needed for democratic politics to thrive and that consensual politics in the long run can only, you know, might only be hiding the fact that uh, there might be some important political frictions in the society and not addressing them might open a way for populism, for example. And one last thing I wanted to, to add to the importance of agreement on a constitution during uh, democratization is that although I think it is, a, you know, coming, settling on, on the rules of, the, of democracy, coming to an agreement about the constitution is really an important threshold for the consolidation of democracy. And it did underpin the peaceful transition process in Tunisia and helped to secure some of the demands of the revolution, such as, you know, the guarantees for freedoms and liberties and so on, it, it did little to address the other revolutionary objectives. And one of the most important ones is uh, social justice. And I think that really possesses a threat to democracy. Thank you. My final question. In the course of your research, what were the most interesting materials you worked with? Could you describe the significant challenges of working on this specific topic? I think the most interesting materials that I work with are for sure interviews that I conducted for this project. Field research, you know, can be tricky and challenging, but it immensely enriched my understanding of politics. 
including the politics of producing a new constitution in the midst of such an upheaval, you know, a transition from authoritarianism. So I was lucky to be able to spend considerable time in Egypt and Tunisia between 2013 and 2020 for field research. And during this time also, you know, the situation changed much. So in 2014, when I was in Tunisia, I could see how the National Constituent Assembly operated, how people, you know, how the deputies related to one another, for example. So this gave me a good understanding of what you know, what I I was actually researching, what was going on. But returning later, you know, in 2015, 2016, and now today, also helped me a lot because it allowed me to speak to people who've already, for example, left politics. So they've become more candid in our interviews. And also it enabled me to develop closer ties with uh, with some of my interview partners. And so to get, you know, further with our discussions and to really get to the heart of the things. And the amazing thing about doing research in Tunisia is how much open people are to the idea of meeting and, you know, doing an interview. Although uh, I know that I'm particularly privileged in this regard, and I know from the experience of some of my Tunisian colleagues that they face more barriers, that it's more difficult for them sometimes to get access. And also I'm quite, uh, I'm quite conscious of the fact, you know, what a burden might the large number of researchers who descended on Tunisia after 2011 to inquire into what we call the successful case. So what burden they are for the time of the people who we, who we interview. And so I, I, I really try to appreciate uh, the time that, you know, my interview partners spend with me and use it wisely. Um, and when it comes to the challenges, I think for me, the most challenging thing was in this in this research project was coming to terms with the fact that I that I won't be able to return to Egypt for research. I did the last round of research there in summer of in the summer of 2014, and it was actually supposed to be only the first round of research for this project. I'm not saying that you know you cannot do research in Egypt anymore, as a number of my colleagues do, and I think that really uh, depends on the type of a project you're doing as well. But for me personally, the window of opportunity closed when Giulio Regeni was murdered in Egypt and he was actually doing his PhD uh, at Cambridge at the same time when I was doing my PhD at Warwick. And that had an impact on me and I decided not to not to return to Egypt to do research there, at least, you know, for some time now. But of course, there are other ways of doing research than through interviews and those ways can be also very interesting. So I have been working more intensely since then with media coverage, with minutes of meetings. And I also managed to speak uh, with some of the key actors who themselves had to leave Egypt after 2013. So I was able to speak with them outside. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website www.themagrepodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.